Welcome to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. Hello and welcome to Location Matters. My name is Sarah Butler. Today we're going to be talking about disaster mapping and crisis mapping, which is something which is really relevant at the moment. In the wake of the Australian bushfires, which ravaged from November 2019 to the end of January 2020, and even more recently, the impact of the coronavirus, which is affecting people at a global scale. We're seeing a lot of maps being shared, whether it's in the media, whether it's by mapping vendors, whether it's by GIS professionals who are just trying to communicate the right information to people. But there is a lot of content out there and a lot of maps being shared that are actually incorrect and and not being used responsibly by the people who are making them. This is something that we've been talking about a lot in the NGIS office. We have a lot of GIS professionals who uh, look at these maps and wonder, you know, what's going through people's minds when they make them. So today I have Paul Farrell, who's the Managing Director of NGIS, and Chris Hoare, who is joining us from our NGIS Sydney office, to talk about what the best practice is. What are people doing that is good? What are some of the good maps we've seen? What are some of the things that people are doing wrong? And how are people making the information maybe more dramatic to mislead people or to shock people or to make people worried and anxious, which is something that we don't want to see. So I just want to thank both of you very much for coming here today. The maps have been at the forefront of media coverage. They've been being used as a communication tool, being used by mapping vendors to show impact. Why do you think, Paul, so many people turn to maps in times like this? Uh, number one reason they turn to maps is they're such an effective communication medium. They very simple way, whether you're seven or 70, of explaining and supporting communication and portraying a picture of what's going on. So if you're saying, here's where something's happening, you can talk about it till the cows come home, but showing it on a map and showing it, yeah, just 100 kilometres south of Sydney and it's spreading around here like with the bushfires, that gives it so much more meaning. Chris, would you agree with that? Yes. However, one must exercise caution. Definitely. I think what we're seeing as well in times like this is that you've got a lot of people who are making maps who maybe aren't trained in making maps. You've got a lot of people who are trained in making maps who I guess are getting a little bit overzealous with the things that they do on the map to maybe create drama. Maybe it's that, you know, in GIS people get really, really excited about the fact that people are all looking at maps all of a sudden you go, hey, this is me trying to explain this is what I do or I want my map to go viral. I think what we're seeing is a lot of data as well that maybe isn't correct, things being shared, maybe a little irresponsibly. What are some of the things that you've seen, we'll start with you, Chris, that you've seen people doing with maps in the last three months in particular that really are raising alarm bells? Yeah, so my favourite there is the big red dot map, as I like to call it, that's uh, appeared since uh, kind of early February. It's on a popular mapping platform, and I believe it's actually sort of well-intentioned. Um, it appeared on the ABC News before the Prime Minister's speech the other morning. And I think this is a good example of how to do and not to do mapping. It's got a bit of both in it. As I said, I believe that the intent was to provide that they're trying to get data out. Uh, but the, the thing that the brain maybe naturally latches onto is, you know, where is it and what is it and how big is it? And so um, this is what we got to see. Uh, we saw a map of China initially with massive red dots across the country showing the size of confirmed cases. And when I saw it, because I've got family in China, I 
appropriate, but hey, why not say it? I just about have to change my underwear. Um, that's how serious this map actually looked. I looked at it closer though and went, hang on a second. Well, this big dot has 20,000 cases. So another dot next to about three quarters of the size, I clicked on that and it had 400 people. I thought, mm. well, hang on a second. Maybe um, we've got a bit of a skew here in the symbology and I dug into it a bit more. That's what had happened. And I think that's kind of natural. We do that in geoscience all the time when we've got logarithmically skewed data sets try and sort of show that sort of subtle variation in the lower end. But in this case, um, it, I found it, and I think a lot of other people have over the last month, probably a lot less. Now, as I said, there's some good stuff there too. Like they've got really good data behind it. It's from, a, it's from the uh, US Institute that sort of um, collects all this information. And it's got everything you need there. But I, I felt, personal opinion, that the representation uh, led to some high alarm. Um, so the data behind it was very good. And the other thing, of course, is colours. And uh, on colours, big red dots, red is bad. Okay, so that's alarmist already. Full of negative connotation. Yeah. So um, I think there's good things about it. But in my opinion, anyway, this sort of log-type legend, you know, it looks dramatic, but perhaps you want to be showing a, a linear type of legend in this case, just, just so that the size of your symbol would sort of reflect the, the size of the outbreak and did that personally for some friends and family. Just to get on it. Oh, and last last thing on it is that the first thing that was getting plotted was just confirmed cases. There was no acknowledgement of recovery and the key thing that it should have been plotting, and I'm pleased to see that this format had adopted this as of about three days ago, uh, is number of active cases, which is you know what we really need to be looking at at the moment. Fortunately, it's still using this log type symbology for active cases. So, so if you look at that without, I'm not sure what today's number is, 400, 450 in Australia. But, you know, we're getting a dot that's sort of uh, getting up towards Italy at this point. Well, you've been working in GIS for a very long time. In fact, I should have mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that Paul and Chris have been working together at NGIS for the longest time. You guys have probably seen many a disaster, many a crisis, many a time like this in GIS. Um, what are your thoughts? What have you seen going on? You know, what are these, like, I guess, common denominators that you see every time we're going through a, a time like this? I totally agree with Chris. I mean, it's just not maps. Statistics can be skewed as well. And the logarithmic scale is a, is a classic because it's used because you want to provide some more granularity at the lower end. But what happens is if you don't edu educate it as what you're actually looking at, you, can, you actually get a panic. So if you looked at cases at the moment and it was on a logarithmic scale, you'd see a rapid escalation of, of every other country catching up to China. And that's where the panic sets in. Whereas it's a logarithmic scale, they're a long way behind. <laughs> and um, like Chris said, there's very few ports on the recovery actually happening there and what's actually happening that's that not that doesn't sell papers but what i see i see maps being used when they're used erroneously sometimes it's ignorance of actually how to portray things so that's innocent but then there's a malicious intent i suppose trying to portray a story so ignorance is, is probably more not quite knowing how to do things i think chris's example about the dots is probably hope to think no one's doing it on purpose it's just 
not experienced at representing things and what it, what it actually means when people look at it. Uh, ill intent is how to manipulate things to serve a purpose and you can do that a whole host of ways. I think the bushfires, we're all forgetting about that, but that, yeah. that classic bushfire image of the whole of the east coast of Australia on fire was just classic and, and like everyone ran with it and all of a sudden you've got Americans going, oh my God, the whole of Australia is on a fire. My favourite line of that whole coverage was um, people saying, Australia is on fire. But it's like, no, guys, some of Australia is experiencing bushfires, not all of them. But you can understand that when people saw those maps, they were thinking, oh, my God. Yeah. And the, so, the further you zoom out, the worse it looked. So no, no different to any other forms of data. And Sarah, we've been talking about this coronavirus and just making sure people go to the reputable sources and the reputable sources will represent the data in a reputable way. People need to be educated very quickly when they're misrepresenting something. So as much as possible, get factual things out there. But look, overall, maps, I think, in a disaster and in a crisis situation are an essential tool. You cannot operate without them. And the, the whole image of the, the map going on the bonnet and someone's being searched for or something, that's why they're there. It gets everyone on the same page. It provides directions. It does provide data. It provides you direction. It aligns everyone to a cause very quickly. So I think overall in a crisis, maps are very good. Yeah, I would fully concur with that. Um, I think one thing we need to remember as spatial professional is that we're not experts in, often, often we are not experts in the subject matter we present in our map. So, you know, it also, if we're out there publishing maps covering something as serious as this, we should be working with SMEs yeah part of what our job is. I think there was something you just said there, Paul, that kind of triggered a, um, an idea for me is also in the, um, in the instance of natural disasters, when we talk about maps, we're not just talking about, you know, a cardo map, a Google map. We're talking about like, you know, using things like satellite imagery to assess damage. We're, we're using earth observations now as well. So it's, it's kind of like bringing together all these different technologies and, it depends on what the case is, how you use that. You know, all of the data sources that you're using are still yeah. relevant, but there are different use cases for how we use our maps yeah. in different disasters. Satellite imagery is a classic because at the end of the day, satellite imagery is just a whole heap of squares on, on the Earth's surface with a number, a rating between 0 and 255, or is it 155, I can't remember. But that's all it is. And then how you represent it is entirely up to you. So you see this classic... Uh, satellite images of that very um, green but you, because you people are used to looking at aerial photography they actually think it actually is green but it, it's not it's just you making it green so people see these images with all this green vegetation and go oh wow look how lush that is well it's not it's just because you've made it look lush <laughs> it's not actually real and circling back to a bit of the kind of um, intent behind a map to make we've seen that too like there's a really it's not a bad map on the New South Wales Health website that just shows a density map. It's still got a bit of a log scale, but I like it because it's in blue. I have, however, seen the same map taken by a news agency a bit north of here, and they've recolored it red again. So, um, you know, it's... It's, it's all about the drama, Chris. <laughs> it is, and I know that, Sarah, you're kind of, you're kind of interviewing us here, but, and there's, a, there's an aspect of media around this as well, and 
you know, we get all excited because people are looking at maps, but we're encouraged to do so as well by media outlets that will lap this stuff up. No, definitely. I, I mean, I mentioned to the team earlier in the week and a lot of people didn't realise that I went to university and studied journalism. I worked in newsrooms for a short period of time. And I know it firsthand. I mean, the blue map cruise doesn't make for a good story. It's not going to generate yeah. clicks. It's not going to freak people out. You know, it's, yeah. just, it's just the nature of that industry. But, you know, I think the other thing is, is that a lot of, if we go back to the bushfire crisis, there were a lot of media outlets actually writing stories about these leading maps. You know, people were writing about it and saying, hey, like, I know all these maps are being shared in the media, but we just feel like we should let you know these are being blown a little out of proportion. I know you shared some with me. But, uh, yeah, look, I think the other thing, and we chatted about this before, is there are some good attempts out there as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, no, I will. But I saw something really interesting. I don't know if you've seen the coronavirus simulator on the Washington Post website. It might be elsewhere as well. We can and definitely it, look at and we'll link it up for our listeners too. Yeah, okay. So um, I'll, I'll just describe roughly what it does. It's a little, it's not a bouncing dot. Actually, it's an animated bouncing dot map. And it's a fictitious sort of simulation. They, they call their simulated disease almost cutely simulitis. And what it does, it's just like a rectangle with, with bouncing dots going through, testing different strategies for you know, medical strategies for dealing with this bug. So they have a free-for-all thing where all the dots bounce off each other. They have a forced quarantine one where there's a barrier in the middle of the rectangle. They also test out distancing, more and extensive, and then they plot with this simulation sort of what the infection rates, recovery rates, and case rates are. And it does, you know, visually, this simulator supports the strategy. What I think is interesting about it, it's not an actual map, but it's a spatial simulation. And people engage so well with this stuff, you know, oh, yeah, I can get that. That is like people moving around. So, so even there, well, I thought it was a really good use of spatial presentation. Have you seen any good maps, Paul? Yeah, another map that always fascinates me, I don't know, I think it's Covent Garden. And what, what's the main, is it Trafalgar in London, the main? Trafalgar Square. Okay, so those representations of the underground various places I think fascinating. Because I'll give you my experience. We were running late to go and see Lion King in Covent Garden. Okay? We were running late and we arrived at Trafalgar from southern England and we had to get to, but all these trains had been cancelled. So we had to work out how we were going to get to Covent Garden from Trafalgar. Okay? So we, we had to cross to this, go to this station. It took us about 40 minutes to then discover afterwards that Covent Garden is probably a 250 metre Mm. In Trafalgar Station. Sure is. Because, and then, and that I've since seen that written about that it actually it confuses a lot of people. But in our mind, the only way to get Covent Garden was the underground. And the map showed it was quite a long way away. And we had to go mm. and come up with this convoluted way. It just showed you that map is a, is a representation. It looks like a map, but it's actually not a map. It's not a physical map. It doesn't represent. Uh, so somehow, somehow you've got to. I don't know, the opportunity would be to put them across each other so you can use... It's about the journey. It's about how do I get from A to B and representing, okay, not just use... This is where technology comes into it and where your GPS and your phones come into it. What you actually want to do is you want to get from point A to point B, not just use the tube. So if I'd had some sort of technology that allowed me to tell me at that time the best way to get somewhere in the quickest time, it would have told me. But I just I found that fascinating how... Uh, that's another representation of a map and how it just 
misrepresents itself and is God's. I'm sure there's probably a lot of people during the Australian bushfire crisis who needed something like that to help them get to evacuation centres, help them reach some kind of assistance rather than just driving from point A to B, but actually knowing the full journey yeah. and what it takes. But in another sense, if you look at it, and I know I was poo-pooing those maps, they are great because they're a very simplistic representation of exactly what you need to do when you're travelling a train. You don't actually need to know what you're going past. You don't need the map itself. You just need the representation of where do I get off? Once I'm there, then, then I'll work it out. Because all I want to know is which station I get off and how far they are away. I don't actually need to know the actual distance between the different stations. I just need which one I'm heading towards, uh, how far away it is. I want to talk a little bit about something you said to me quite a while ago, um, Paul, which was when Richard Bentley was here and you were both talking about it. It was his book called How to Lie with Maps. Do you, <laughs> do you remember that? Yes, I'd had that at university. Have you seen anything in your career, and I'm sure you have, especially in times like this, that you read about in the book? The book is, is fascinating. Myself and Chris were just talking about it because when I was at uni, we were at uni quite a long time ago, weren't we, Chris? Did you guys go to uni um, together? We were at University of WA the same year. We, I we, didn't know that. We, we, we actually had some common friends. We knew of each other. I don't think – we would have talked to each other, but we weren't close, but we definitely were at the tavern on Friday afternoons at the same time. We had some common friends. And so Chris did geology, I did geography, and they were right next door to each other. That's right. So, we, yeah, exactly the same age, exactly the same university. And Did you guys have to read this book for uni or something? Uh, yeah, it was, it was – you know, I'm trying to work out whether it was when I was doing my grad dip at Curtin or UWA. I can't remember which one it was. No, it was UWA because I remember I actually – Borrowed the book off Derek Milton and uh, had to give it back to him ten years later. It's it's everything we've been talking about. It's it's um it's it's just how you can manipulate maps to represent things. Uh, look, a classic example. I'll give you two classic examples. Maps are bi- uh, in a lot of cases binary, but there's some things that where that's true. But there's so much things in nature where there is no line. Uh, geology is a classic. There's no real line to say, well, there's some features there are, but you've actually got to create the line to say, well, that's one unit, that's the other unit, but it's actually not that. It's not that way. Uh, vegetation's the same, where it actually it's usually a, over a period of time vegetation changes from one to another, but we've, we're compelled to put a line somewhere. So, the other one is, um, the other one they always used to talk about is, is showing information that you are representing say, well, this is where my sales are. But actually what you're representing is, there's where the population is. It's a different thing. I mean, yeah, oh, great, that's where all our sales are. Yeah, but duh, that's where all the population is. Yeah. That's where your sales should be. <laughs> it's not actually showing you anything. It just shows you where the population is. Yeah, so, and so that, I mean, that's interesting because, you know, ultimately what we're doing on the map is we're presenting rather statistical information. So that old adage, you know, lies, damn lies, and statistics equally well for us, lies, damn lies, and maps. What are some of the key things that you guys would recommend to people who are dabbling in the creation of maps right now to make sure that they're doing it right? Chris? Yeah, look, I think the first thing you've got to ask yourself is why are you putting it out there? And if it's to show off and you know, self-promote, then you're wasting people's time. And even worse than that, as we're seeing over here, potentially, you know, fueling panic virus. 
if you are going to put maps out, you should have a good reason to do so. A lot of the time we are working with our clients to help spatially enable whatever they do. I'd like to think that, um, that working with some sort of organisation genuinely part and involved in what's going on. I guess, you know, if you mean to do well and you just want to put it out there because you can, then I would say, you know, there's a few things. One, tell the story as factually as you can. Make sure your data's rock solid. Reference it. Remember that with something like this, if you're not a medical professional, you shouldn't be presenting your maps in such a way that people will draw conclusions. And you have to be really very careful about the that. wrong conclusions. Yeah, well, potentially that's it. So, you know, and there's there's two kinds of bad mapping as well. I think we've seen a lot of misrepresentation that over-represents, and there's, I, I think you know, seeing that red dot map before the PM speech may have something to do with the lack of meat in the shelves down at Woolies at the moment. But correspondingly, if you misrepresent by not showing the severity of something, you've done you've done it. Actually, done a bit of harm as well. So you get your facts right, get your data right, and you know, try not to, unless it's under you know almost strict supervision or with people that really know the area you're in, don't have your app set up such that people draw the wrong. For me, I mean, if someone's unethical, they're going to do whatever they want. If they want to be yeah. sensational, they'll do whatever they want. But if people are truly serious about responsible, uh, exactly what Chris said, just make sure you're really clear what you're trying to communicate, make sure the, the app clearly and factually communicates that. The other thing sometimes people make the mistake to do, and GIS professionals are as guilty of this as anyone, is trying to put too much information on a map, what is the one message, and someone's looking at that map they want to take away. If your intention is for it to be factual and effective, just this one thing they take away from that. Chris, it was kind of like you, you were saying, like, ask yourself the question first. Why am I making this map? I think that's really powerful because I think right now as well, just I'll, I'll throw it out there as something that I've seen, is am I making this map to be factual? Am I trying to communicate the right message here? Am I helping people make the right conclusions about a situation? But I think that there are a lot of people making maps at the moment to somehow profiteer off of them. And I think that there's a big question mark over that as well because... Obviously, mapping providers all over the place, they want to use their tools for good. And I can, I can, I've seen some examples of, of some mapping providers that are doing a great job of being able to create tools that are going to actually help people. But I think that just my two cents is that you know, if you're making this map because you want to eventually make money down the track, this is a very sensitive time for people to do that. Oh, you most definitely. I mean, in, in, in the old days, this is called profiteering when you see that sort of behaviour. I mean, I... Uh, absolutely. Ambulance chasing is what I used to call it. Look, people that do that, it speaks to your culture. It speaks to what, how you operate your business, and it actually disgusts me. We, we've, we've been involved in things. I mean, the Arche tsunami reconstruction, we sent people up there, and, and we, yeah, we're sure we ended up with a little bit of business out of it, but it was just, just the right thing to do, just go and help. Talk about maps. They didn't have any maps. The whole place was wiped out. There was nothing there. There was nothing on the ground. And how do people know where their property was? It was a huge, monstrous mapping exercise required, and they needed immediate help. Just don't even think about it. Just jump to Don't worry about what, what it's in it for you. So it really upsets me when organisations, and it just speaks to their culture. 
Do you do either of you have any recommendations? Um, I guess resources, places where people can go so that they can. You know, read the read the book that um, we've just talked about. Uh, go to go to the sources of these places. You know, John Hopkins, Worldometer is actually pretty good because it sources everything. WHO, but for cartographic best practices, I don't know. Buy the buy the textbooks. <laughs> the fundamentals of cartography haven't changed. Engage a professional. It's it's not it's not easy. People train for years in this space. It's not easy. So I'd, I'd say educate yourself a little bit. Hire a professional <laughs> to to do it if you're really serious about getting it done well. I think that's fair advice, and I think given everything we've just spoken about, it's it, going back to exactly what Chris said at the beginning of the podcast. If you if you're doing it the right way, you're doing it with the right data. If you're you're doing it for the right reasons, then if you're engaging with a professional, you can make sure it's done the right way. Exactly, and like like a you know, if I go to an accountant and they're serious about their and their profession, they'll provide me ethical, legal advice. If I want to go to a dodgy who's going to find every which way to dodge the system, I can find those people too. Well, thank you both very much for being on the podcast today. Chris, who's joining us from Sydney, virtually, I mean, I have to say in times of crisis and, and, you know, it really forces you to think outside the box of how you can get people to participate in things. And I'm really glad that we were able to get you on this podcast, Chris. You're an absolute wealth of knowledge. I know you're really passionate about this topic. So I really just want to say thank you for being here. Oh, yeah, you're most welcome. I agree too. And um, we're looking at more and more of this with some of our clients. That said, I did a training course for um, some government people yesterday. We did our separation. Um, all 10 of them turned up coming from wide and afar and uh, uh, it's quite too. so yeah we need to be flexible with this tech thanks you're very welcome and paul thank you for being here as well it's really always so great to have you on the podcast as our managing director i no know problems. you're a busy guy but we've i mean i'll make no secret of it it's something this is a topic that we've all been talking about since the beginning of the year with the bushfires and you know i try to turn it into a, a blog post to share with people because I could see how passionate we all are about it and I'm really glad that we were able to record this because I feel like it needed it. Yeah, great. Yeah, no, thanks. It's been a good topic and good to do it, Chris. Maybe we can do something a little bit less uh, serious next time, Chris. <laughs> Look, it's spanking weather over here at the moment. It's really sunny and bright. I mean, I hope, hope this holds out for a bit, so maybe next time we can talk about doing it here or something like that. <laughs> Won't uh, keep you inside I, too much longer. I, I think so. So for anyone um, that's listening to the podcast today, um, Paul and Chris mentioned a few different resources there. So I'm going to link those on our podcast page. So to see that, you just need to go to www.ngis.com.au and under Newsroom, there's a podcast link. And if you just go down to this episode, you'll see all of the the links that they've mentioned there. Um, You can do some reading about this and um, educate yourself a little bit further. And if you're interested in subscribing to our podcast, you can do that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You've been listening to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. To find more episodes or to read our blog, check out our website, ngis.com.au